Welcome to our sermon podcast here at City of Light Anglican Church. We are a new church in Aurora, Illinois, finding a new day in Jesus. We want to see the light of Jesus rise and shine in our hearts, in our homes, and in our neighborhoods. Thanks for joining us for today's message. A reading from the letter of Paul to the Romans. Let no debt remain outstanding except for the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, at our Sunday gatherings, um, we have a diverse group of people often here, uh, new Christians, people exploring what it would look like to follow Christ, um, guests who are here with friends, uh, Christians from a lot of different traditions. And so when we get to a passage like this from Romans um, that Erica just read for us that we're going to be studying this morning uh, that talks about sex, we come to it with different perspectives, different experiences, and and even some different beliefs and practices. I mean, what other context do we have where we get together with a large group of people, some of whom we know, some of whom we don't know, and we talk about sex? Maybe a comedy club? Um, I'm not going to tell any jokes about sex this morning, Um, although um, I did think of a joke the other night, but it doesn't have anything to do with sex. but I thought it was a good one. Uh, someone was uh, showing me a stuffed animal that was a dolphin, and I, and I said, you know what would be a great name for a pet dolphin? Adolf Finn. That'd be a great name. Okay, but that's my only joke today. So when we uh, talk about sex, uh, it's always intensely personal and universal, right? Um, it intersects with things we've experienced or seen or people we love have, uh, and, and it's that way for everybody. And because of that, it can feel really vulnerable, and there can be anxiety when we talk about it. And it's always personal and vulnerable for me as I preach about it. Um, And so I've been praying, and we were praying before the service, that as we come to the Word of God, that we'd be filled with a sense of peace from the Lord as we look at what it means to follow Jesus in this way. If you aren't a follower of Jesus, this is one of the ways that Christianity is really different from other belief systems. 
um, really different from what uh, an atheist believes or what an agnostic believes in our culture. And if you are here this morning and you believe something different than what I'm going to teach us, the Bible teaches, I hope you can tell from my words and um, actions that I still respect you. And I want to honor you this morning. And I, and I hope that, that you feel welcomed and loved, just like you would if you were talking to Jesus about this and you disagreed with him. Um, the narrative we hear about sexual ethics and about uh, LGBTQ plus practices and beliefs is that we really only have two options when talking with one another. And it's, it's either um, we completely affirm what someone else believes and practices or we're completely alienated from them and we completely condemn it. Is that really the only two options that we have? It's either um, love or hate. Not affirming what someone else uh, believes and practices doesn't mean that we're hating those people, right? Lots of people don't affirm coming to church or they don't affirm that Jesus was God who died and rose again. But that doesn't mean that they hate me as someone who does believe those things, necessarily. I mean, they might, but our, our only two options, complete ally or complete enemy, I don't think so. In this country, we live in a pluralistic society where people from a lot of places with a lot of different beliefs live together and are trying to be good neighbors to one another. Can Christians and non-Christians disagree about sexual ethics and still respect one another and, and even be good neighbors and even be good friends and family members? You know, this passage here starts um, in Romans 13 by saying, love your neighbor as yourself, even when we don't agree in our sexual ethics and practice. Now, it's not easy to do that because it's so personal. It's, it's who we are. It's, it's what we do. For a person who identifies as a part of the LGBTQ community, hearing a follower of Jesus say, Jesus loves you and welcomes you, but, but parts of what you believe and what you do, he says, are not good for you. That's really hard to hear. I appreciate that that's really hard to hear. And for those who uh, follow Jesus and identify as a Christian and believe in a traditional sexual ethic, it's really hard to hear that because we believe in that, we're hateful or we're ignorant. That's hard to hear too. Can we acknowledge that but still commit to having respectful conversations about this and loving each other as neighbors? We want, as Christians, for people to know by our words and our actions and our attitudes that we love them, even when we disagree about sexual identity and ethics and practice. Um, maybe you're here and you are a Christian, a new one, or you've been one for a while, or you're a student and you're wondering, do we have this right? Christians aren't perfect. We've made mistakes before. Have we misunderstood what the Bible or God teaches about this? And those are important questions to ask. And what the Bible and the teach church is, uh, what the Bible and the church teaches is so different than what the world teaches that we have to examine it carefully. We have to know what it's saying. 
And I hope some of what we talk about this morning helps, but we just have time today to open the conversation. We can't get into every aspect of this. I can't say everything that might need to be said. So please receive this as an invitation for more conversation, for more study and more talking with me or with others here. This takes study and teaching, and it's too important of an issue to get our answers about how to read the Bible or what to believe about God from social media, from 30-second videos, from three-sentence taglines. This is too important to be um, discipled by that on any side of this conversation as our only study. That doesn't count as study, okay? And according to uh, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 4, Teaching about sexual ethics and identity was part of his normal teaching for new believers. His normal teaching for new believers was to talk through their sexual practice. He says in chapter 4 of that letter, uh, remember what I taught you about how to walk and please God. And then he goes on to include sexual practice in that. So this is part of maturing and living life as a Christian, a normal part of that. Um, in a world where uh, this isn't what others think and this isn't what others practice. And so we want to always situate, when we talk about our sexual ethics, our sexual practice, we want to always situate it in what's unique about what we believe as Christians about the world and about God and about humans. And that's why Paul gets to sexual ethics at the end of his letter to the Romans, because he wants to situate it in the context of all of the good news of the gospel. We don't ever want to talk about sex outside of that framework, because it doesn't make sense, the Bible's teaching about sex, outside of the Bible's framework of what's going on in the world and in history and with God. So Paul begins his letter in chapter 1 by saying, a good God made a good and beautiful world. And you can see that goodness all around us. And that includes our identities as male and female, and that includes sex for husband and wife. But then it goes on to say in the letter to the Romans that we've rebelled against God's way, and things have gotten broken and messed up, and that includes our, our bodies and our identities as male and female and our sexual practice. That's part of what is broken in the world. But while we were sinful and broken in all of the ways, while we were enemies of God, God comes to us as Jesus. And on the cross, he takes on all of our brokenness, all of our sin, including all the ways we've messed up sexually, and he offers forgiveness, utter and complete cleansing and healing for that. And we get adopted into this new family with a new way of life that we believe something different about our bodies and the world, and that practices that. And Paul says, we still have all of these bad habits. In chapter 7, he still says, we still want to do things that are bad for us and don't want to do things that are good for us. But in the midst of that, God is bringing his healing little by little, day by day, He's setting things right. And one day, he will completely set all things right, including who we are as male and female, and including our bodies and our sexual practice. 
all of that will be set right. And so Paul gets to this part of Romans, and he goes, we get closer to God setting that right every single day. The hour has already come. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Every day we get closer to God fully healing us. So let's live into that. There's no way to explain God's plan for sex outside of this story. It doesn't make sense if there's not a God who made us and knows what's good for us. It doesn't make sense if there's not a God who loves us and gave his life to save us. It doesn't make sense if there's no forgiveness for messing up. It doesn't make sense if things aren't going to be one day fully set right and healed. So we can never try to explain this to someone who doesn't believe that God made us and died for us and redeemed us and is setting things right without starting there. And so don't be surprised that Christians believe something that's completely at, odd with, at odds with what the world believes. Don't expect someone who, believes, who doesn't believe that God made the world to want to believe that that God has a way for them to live their sex lives, right? The Bible starts with an affirmation of God's good creation of our bodies. He made us male and female. And it starts with a good and beautiful affirmation of where sexual practice finds its safety and fulfillment. Genesis 2.24 says, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. A beautiful, poetic description of one of God's greatest gifts in creation. Man leaves his father and mother. He's not coming back. This is for forever. A man and a woman, because together they fully reflect the image of God, equal as image bearers, distinct as male and female. They become one flesh. This is the place for sexual intimacy, where it's designed to show that our bodies are made for bonding, that we're made for union and deep communion, for a husband and wife in marriage, for all others in other types of relationships, for us and God, our maker. And this is what the church has from its beginning always and everywhere understood about what the Bible teaches about our sexual practice. And so Romans 13 uh, starts with this affirmation, or the Bible starts with this affirmation of sex in the safety of marriage, but it also warns us of the dangers of sex in other contexts. Verse 13, look there with me in your bulletin or on page 1445 of the Bibles and the chairs. Verse 13, let's behave decently, as in the daytime, not carousing and drunk, not in carousing and drunkenness. That's uh, the idea of um, parties and excessive substance abuse, whether it be alcohol or drugs, that leads to all types of bad behavior. Not in sexual immorality and debauchery, um, not in dissension and jealousy. It's interesting that dissension and jealousy are included there. It might seem like they're different, but what Paul is talking about is he's, these are all ways that we harm each other and ourselves. These are all ways that relationships get ripped apart, <laughs> all of this behavior. Now, what is the Bible talking about when it says things like sexual immorality and debauchery? 
Um, one of the um, main arguments against uh, what the Bible teaches about um, sexual ethics is that the Bible actually doesn't address what's going on today in sexual practice. The Bible doesn't really have anything to say about LGBTQ+, um, because this is a, a modern understanding of relationships and sexual identity and practice. The Bible really had no idea about any of that, and it doesn't address it. Um, so one um, you know, common phrase that, that was said is, at the heart of the claim that the Bible is clear about sexual ethics is poor biblical scholarship and a cultural bias read into the Bible. Okay? Um, what what they mean by poor biblical scholarship there is that um, reading the traditional sexual ethic in the Bible is not addressing the context of the day when the Bible was written, and then not uh, addressing the, the context now um, and all of the things that we've, we've learned. Um, and then reading sort of a, I don't know, like a Western or American prudishness back into the Bible. Okay, well, when it talks about sexual immorality, it must talk about what like conservative Christians have thought about it for the last however many years. Um, and so these ancient texts, they weren't talking about a more, our more advanced modern understanding of sexual practice or our identity. They weren't talking about committed, loving relationships. They weren't talking about consensual sexual relationships. Now, the true thing about what they're getting at is that the cultural context of the day is really important. And when Paul is writing this letter to the Romans in Roman culture, or what we studied in social studies as Greco-Roman culture or Hellenistic culture, um, that their sexual practices were very, very different than today. And what was seen as normal and good and beautiful in their culture um, was actually really abusive in a lot of instances. And uh, the LGBTQ plus community and the Christian community would link arms and agree wholeheartedly that a lot of what was going on was just terrible. And a lot of it was directed against women, children, and slaves. And actually, one of the liberating things that happened as the Roman Empire received Christianity is that the Bible's sexual ethic of do no harm to your neighbor transforms those cultural practices around sexuality and creates a much, much safer environment for women, children, and slaves. In 1 Corinthians uh, 6, Paul's talking about this for the Greco-Roman city of Corinth. He says, some of you used to do all these things sexually before you were baptized. He lists adultery, which in the Roman culture was sometimes okay and sometimes not okay. Um, it was okay. I won't get into that, but um, it also lists same-sex practice and other, other different types of sexual relationships there. He says, but now you're baptized, you've given those up. The Christian way is different than the way of the culture around it. Into the specific context of the Greco-Roman world, Paul gives specific correctives so that people can not do what the culture around them is doing and do what the Lord says is good for them. And just because he doesn't address something specific that's happening in our culture today doesn't mean that that must be okay. Right? 
that ignores that the Bible starts with, begins with, a positive, specific affirmation of who we are as male and female and where the proper place for sexual intimacy is. It starts with the affirmation. It's actually poor biblical scholarship to deal only with prohibitions and not first with the affirmation. Does that make sense? Let me put a finer point on it than that. Um, The word here in the text is uh, sexual immorality in verse 13. The Greek word there is porneia. And what that means is any type of sexual practice other than what God has said is good. Anything else? The Bible doesn't have to cover every scenario. It says what is good and beautiful and holy in our sexual practice. It says everything else isn't good for us. It gives us a few examples, but it does not have to be exhaustive to be clear. Now, that above argument that the Bible doesn't talk about this, and so we can, you know, practice how we'd like or what we think is good, um, is actually somewhat dated. You'll you'll still hear it. It's still out there. um, But most scholars uh, have moved on from it because it's demonstrably (laughs) false. And so it's much more common now to hear people say, the Bible was just wrong. And we know better now. We have a more sophisticated way to read the Bible. Um, We know the parts that were human and we should uh, jettison, and we know the parts that were divine, um, and we can kind of choose and sift through each of them and discern together which parts of the Bible to incorporate in our lives. Um, That's an advocating for a way of reading the Bible that's never... um, been read before. Now, throughout the history of the church, there's always been people who have said, we don't like this about the Bible, or we've gained some new knowledge or some new way of interpretation, and, and, and those, are, those are not Christian ways of reading the Bible. If you're going to throw out some of it, why not throw out all of it, right? If, if we're getting to choose what is and isn't um, appropriate for us or what, what we do or don't have to do in the Bible, then then why, why read it? Um, as Anglicans, we don't read the Bible on our own. We read it with the church around the world and the church throughout history. We don't think we're smarter than everyone else. We don't think we've discovered something new or evolved past the words that God gave us. We're not trying to invent a new religion here. So that's what Paul is talking about, but one of the things that I think is really beautiful and pastoral about how he does this in Romans 13 is is the context he puts it in and why he starts talking about it. And that starts at the very beginning. Let no debt remain outstanding, verse 8, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. We remember from last week's message Um, that David preached is all of this teaching about how to love each other as a community, as the church, how to care for one another. And so Paul comes back to that theme here, and he lists of the Ten Commandments um, the ones that have to do with how we treat each other. Don't murder. That's not loving your neighbor. That hurts your neighbor. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Um, And he sums them up by saying, 
love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we do as followers of Jesus. And then he says the opposite of that, right? Love does no harm to our neighbor. Do no harm. I, I think I've told this story before, but um, there was this, uh, it's one of my favorite stories. I was visiting um, my wife Bonnie's family before we were married, and I was there for Christmas. And they uh, had a cat. I'm very allergic to cats. Like within a few hours, the itchy eyes, the running nose, the like headaches, and it's, it just feels terrible. And so I got like some special prescrip- prescription allergy medicines, and I was taking them beforehand. I get there, and like a few days before Christmas, my medicine just disappears, and I can't find it anywhere. And like the over-the-counter stuff just isn't helping, and I'm miserable. Christmas Eve, I'm miserable. We get home um, from church, and we start uh, exchanging presents, and uh, Bonnie's next older brother, uh, Matthew, he hands me a present, and I open it, and it's my allergy medicine. (laughs) He thought it was so funny to take this, and Bonnie's like, he's been miserable. Um, Matthew's a doctor. (laughs) He's uh, a missionary doctor in Papua New Guinea. Um, And when you become a doctor, Dr. Mark, what do you take? You take an oath, right? (laughs) The Hippocratic Oath. Um, And you say, do no harm. Um, But one of my first and strongest memories of uh, Dr. Matthew um, was him doing a little harm. Inadvertently, though. I know. He does, feel, he does feel bad, and I give him a hard time about it. And I've, I've said it before in a message, um, like a few years ago, and then he was listening to the podcast like three months later, and he like messaged me, he's like, hey, thanks for telling everybody that. So hopefully Matthew listens to it again and hears me tell it again. Um, that would make me happy. He wasn't trying to harm me. Like, he didn't intend it to be harmful, right? Um, but we don't want to harm our neighbor. That's the goal. I think one of the things that many of us feel most distressed about when it comes to the Bible's teaching on sexual practice and identity is that by believing this, we are just intrinsically doing harm to others, just by believing this. And that's the, that's the, the message we often hear, right? Um, don't be hateful by believing what the Bible teaches about sexual practice. Be loving, which means to affirm a different teaching about sexual practice. But that's not actually the issue. The issue is not that some people want to love and some people want to hate, although there's always, that's true for some. The issue is what is most loving? What practices are actually good for us? And and what's actually good for other people? There's this um, uh, book called um, When Helping Hurts. It's about caring for, for different people who are going through different things and how often um, with good intentions will provide some immediate form of like help or care to somebody else that just plays into like a bigger system and actually causes more harm um, later on, even though it's doing something helpful now when helping hurts. That's how I feel about whenever my kids want to help me with my chores. <laughs> when helping hurts, right? It's like I'm just trying to sweep something up, but they got the dustpan, they swing it around, and it goes everywhere. I, have, I could tell a lot of stories about that. My uh, three-year-old, Wells, loves helping. He's terrible at it. He's no help. Makes everything harder. What we want to do is we want to do no harm to our neighbor, and what we need is, 
is we need to know how. And so Paul goes, do no harm to your neighbor. Let's behave decently, not carousing and in drunkenness, because that does harm to your neighbor. Not in sexual immorality and debauchery, because that does harm to your neighbor. Not in dissension and jealousy, because that does harm to your neighbor. He wants us to love, and love has specific actions and practices. He doesn't say, love fulfills the law, love your neighbor, so do whatever you want sexually. No, he says what what John says in 1 John 4, God is love. Everyone who loves is born of God. So keep God's commands. That's what's love. I want to give just a couple of brief examples of this, um, how different messages we receive in our culture about sex actually aren't loving, they're actually harmful. Um, One example is casual sex, which is to some extent what the phrase um, debauchery is is, is talking about. Um, Our culture and media work so hard to present the the image that sex outside of marriage is fun and exciting and healthy and good, no matter what it looks like, just so long as there is consent. Um, It is perfectly possible to consent to someone harming you. It is perfectly possible to consent one day and realize at another day in the future that that was harmful. When a boxer steps into the ring, they've given permission to the other person to try and knock them out. It's consensual, but someone's still going to get hurt, probably both, and often one person a lot more than the other. When we teach God's way for sexual practice, we don't want to try to be judgmental. We're not trying to be hateful. We're trying to keep people safe trying to keep people from the harm that sexual sin always brings. And so much of the time, it hurts women disproportionately more than men. And so to love and care, I mean, there's, there's a movement that would say um, liberation and freedom for women is doing anything they want to sexually. That's so harmful. It's not safe. And nobody who cares about women will encourage that. Here's another teaching in our culture about sexual ethics. Men are biologically unable to be faithful to one partner. So they shouldn't try. I was reading um, an article from sociologist Lisa McMinn where she describes some of the different sociological and biological arguments for that sort of cultural ethic around sexuality. Um, you know, hunter-gatherer uh, societies and the need to keep the, the tribe strong and, and different parts of this. And it's kind of taken as scientific fact, this conclusion of like, well, therefore men are this way. And it justifies all kinds of behavior that the Bible says is dangerous and harmful. Now, that same thinking um, was the most dominant part of Roman sexual culture as well. Um, that this is who men are. They can do this. Um, But is this really science? Is this really a fact? McMinn goes on to say, it's not. It's a non sequitur, which in logic means it does not logically follow that 
we should just say, this is how men are, and, and they can do whatever. And of course, the, uh, there's a movement then to correspond to that, like, well, if men can do whatever, then, then it's liberating then for women to do whatever as well. We do a lot of things that aren't good for us. We have a lot of desires that are bad. You can make just as strong of an argument from a sociological or biological standpoint that men are more violent. They had to protect the tribe. They had to fight off wild beasts. They had to fight off warring factions. They're more violent. It's just who they are. So we should just let men be more violent, right? But our identity is not in our desires, (laughs) And just because we desire something does not make it good. We believe in a story that God created us good, but those desires are broken and fallen. Those identities are broken and fallen, and he's working to restore them. In that context, anything that sociology or biology might say about early um, human civilization doesn't bother us. It's like, well, yeah, things are messed up. God's making them better. He can heal us, and we can follow God's way. You know, we say about violence, we say about um, casual sex, we say all about this, what Paul says in Thessalonians, control yourself. Don't let your body hurt other people. What he says here, don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Um, While we're talking about science and harmful practices in our culture, just say one word about pornography. Culture and media, they casually and intentionally ignore the fact that every shred of scientific evidence shows how monumentally harmful to men and women pornography is and how much abuse and trafficking of women the pornography industry causes worldwide. And yet it's celebrated culturally as liberation and education. That's not science. (laughs) It's harmful. It's dangerous. And if you need help, please reach out to someone here We would love to help you get free and sober of that. Sexual practice outside of God's way is not safe and good and healthy and beautiful. It's dangerous, it's hurtful, it's harmful. And if we want to love our neighbors as ourselves, Paul tells us in our own lives and in our own practice, follow God's way. And when we can in love, share that way and invite others into it. And in chapter 12, he actually gives us incredible teaching on how we can love neighbors who don't follow Jesus and who have a different sexual ethic or identity than we do. He gives us beautiful ways that we can love people in the LGBTQ plus community. He says, when people disagree with you, bless them. He says, as much as you can live with peace with those around you, do it. If, something, if someone disagrees with you, even if they misrepresent you or mistreat you, still care for them when they're hungry or when they're thirsty. If someone does something to you, don't do it back. It's a great rule of thought for social media. Don't think you're better than anyone. Be with those that the world thinks aren't as good. Live by the laws of the land. Pay your taxes, respect and honor officials as you can while obeying the teaching of the Lord. And then what the Apostle Paul will tell us in the passage that I'm preaching on next week, speak the good news of Jesus to anyone who hasn't heard. Our our bishop wrote in a um, 
Anglican Church in North America letter about sexual practice, the greatest way we can care for all people is to proclaim the truth revealed in Scripture with emphasis on the great mercy and love that's promised to all who believe. How do we, how do we love as Christians neighbors who believe something different than we do? I was praying about this, and I had um, a prayer image of just uh, a sort of hillside with a large rock on it and swirling wind and waves and rain, and this rock was swept up and beaten and unmovably peaceful. It wasn't part of the chaos. It was in it, but it it was a... um, Here's a a line from T.S. Eliot. It was a still point in a turning world. There's just a sense of peace and stability. Um, It reminded me of uh, what author Edwin Friedman talks about in his book, Failure of Nerve, from uh, about 20, 25 years ago. He talks about how, um, whether it's in a family system, an organization, a community, a friend group, when we're in the middle of something that is emotionally turbulent or in the middle of uh, an Uh, anxiety in a network of relationships. And I think we can describe our culture and sexual ethics as that, can't we? A lot of turmoil, a lot of anxiety. Um, He says, how can we survive that without being overwhelmed by it? How can we be that still point, that rock, that that steady, peaceful, non-anxious presence? And he says, "We we have to know who we are and our identity. It's from knowing who we are and what we believe in our identity that we're able to truly love another person. He calls that self-differentiation. You are you, I am me. On one hand, we could be so opposed to those who live differently than us that we wouldn't be compassionate. We wouldn't be able to empathize with the things in their experience that have been hard or unfair. And that the only thing that matters is us being right. But on the other hand, we could so over-identify with the emotions and sufferings of others that we would lose all ability to differentiate between their emotions and mine. And the only thing that matters in that scenario is just feeling emotionally connected with the other person. And the greatest fear is something that would disconnect that. So Friedman says we have to be self-differentiated to be able to say, I can empathize with your emotions and suffering. I can weep with those who weep but I don't have to agree with your conclusions. We can be different people, and I can be a loving presence in your life precisely because I am a different person. But if we are anxious as Christians, as followers of Jesus, and we respond with a fight or with a fright or with a flight, and we can't engage with the deep peace of Jesus because we're built on him as the rock and we trust him as the unchanging one, we won't be able to love people who don't agree with us and who might even think we're hateful bigots. We might become hateful bigots. Or we won't be able to take the pressure of other people not liking us or other people thinking we're not loving and we're hateful and we'll withdraw, we'll take flight, or we'll compromise. And all of this happens at such a subconscious level. These aren't overt thought patterns, but it's what I see over and over again. When we're controlled not by 
our will and our emotions working together, we're just controlled by anxiety and fear. And we can't handle what it feels like to be in the middle of the storm or to be on the wrong side of history. But here we stand. We have the beautiful, life-affirming teaching of the Bible. It is clear. It is safe. It is good. And we're part of a church that's going to stay faithful to that. What if that lets us be non-anxious people of peace who can love our neighbors well, even when they don't agree with our sexual practice? We can minister Jesus' peace because he is such a non-anxious presence in the midst of people who have sinned in all different ways, but he knows can be forgiven in all of the ways. In the midst of people who are there who fawn over him or people who are there who hate him, he is who he is. (laughs) The still point in the turmoil. And throughout history and today, people have heard this teaching of Jesus and particularly this very passage and had their lives changed and transformed by Jesus. A North African man whose life was marked by carousing and drunkenness, sexual immorality, and debauchery read this 1,600 years ago, read this very passage, and his life was changed. His name was Augustine, and he wrote about it in his book called The Confessions. And more recently, uh, a college professor from America, part of the LGBTQ plus community, started reading passages like this in the Bible, and her life was transformed and changed. Her name's Rosario Butterfield, and she writes about it in The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And it's because Jesus and his people are meant to be this beautiful, non-anxious presence, a still point in the turning world for everyone willing to listen, people who are radically committed to loving our neighbors and doing no harm. And so Paul ends this passage by saying, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll say that in other places. He says, in baptism, you were clothed with Christ. You have put on Christ. And so we put on Jesus. We are his. We are his children. We can walk in his light. He gets to decide what is darkness. He gets to decide what is light. He gets to decide who we are. And he gives us the strength to follow him. He gives us the peace to do no harm to our neighbor, to love our neighbor with the love of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from City of Light Anglican Church. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at cityoflightanglican.org. And now, may the light of Jesus scatter the darkness from before your path.